Hi folks, welcome to episode 119 of the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I am joined, of course, by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about a small subject, the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Why that? Well, it's just a great story. Yeah. Um, one of the great set pieces in European history. Um, and in Epochs, sometimes we do a really tight focus thing, almost one day's events. Sometimes it's much more broad strokes. This is going to be very, very broadly speaking. I'm going to do about a, mm. almost 100 years of history here. So going to sweep through it. But no view. So one of the things to mention is that the fall of Rome is a set of events. Um, some people uh, do say that they think they ascribe the fall of Rome to that they used lead pipes and it sent people mad and it was the lead piping that led yeah. to the fall of Rome. That's just a nonsense. Get that out of your mind if that's what's in your mind. There are it's probably just... dozens of reasons, but there are like obviously two or three like major socio-political events that lead yeah. to this yeah. and so it's obviously not just something as mechanical as there's lead in the pipes they've had lead pipes for centuries what now it's a set of events it's a process yeah. that lasts a long time well i'm going to do about 100 years here mm. and one of the things to say is that different historians pick different points mm. if you're going to pick one moment or one day or one emperor say say he was the last roman emperor of the west yeah. different historians pick different ones so we're going to go through all of them, really, all the main candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing to say is that historians like the quarrelsome lot. They like to argue over things. Yeah. You can say, some people do say, that the Eastern Roman Empire is a direct continuation of the Western Roman Empire. And so Rome didn't fall until the 13th century and the Fourth Crusade. Or some say even 1453, when the Ottomans finally besieged Constantinople for the last time. And but that's pushing it. There, there is some legitimacy to this argument as well, because some would say, well, there's a legacy of continuity here, as in Rome conquered the Mediterranean basin. Uh, Constantine, a legitimate Roman emperor, because he won the Civil War, um, founds a new capital, Constantinople. Um, this becomes the capital of the Roman Empire for however long. And then the empire is divided at late stages, but that doesn't change the... Um, legacy that's inherited, the continuation of institutions, of uh, traditional legal uh, practices, things like this, um, even when the empire definitely takes on a Hellenic tone. Mm. Uh, it doesn't have the sort of Latin character that the Western Roman Empire has, obviously. But, uh, but you can, I think, successfully argue that, of course, it's the Roman Empire. That's how they thought of themselves at the time. That's what they were continuing on into the future and uh, definitely ends with um, Mehmed II's conquest <laughs> of the city. So. That final fall of Constantinople in 1453 is uh, just a great moment in history. If you're looking for a spot yeah. to sort of draw a line under things, that's sort of a perfect example of when you can draw a line under things. Like the Norman Conquest 1066. You can draw a line there very yeah. clearly. It's the end of the Saxon um, period. And I would also agree that you can make the argument that the Eastern Roman Empire is in all sorts of ways a direct uh, um, continuation of the Roman world. Yeah. Um, they called themselves Greek, wrote and spoke in Greek after a while. But anyway, hmm. you can certainly make that argument. However, it's not sort of the classical Roman, they're not sort of no. the classical Western Roman Romans, if you know what e I mean. Everyone knows there's a kind of essence that's missing mm. to this. Um, and I, so, I, would, I, would, I, would, I think I'd be most comfortable calling it a kind of successor state, right, yeah. which feels more appropriate, because there is a kind of essential Romanness that is missing. 
But by the end, by 1453, it's really a shadow of a shadow oh, yeah. of a... Uh, the, the real Byzantine Empire was destroyed in the late 13th century by the Fourth Crusade, yeah. by, by Franks, really. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, people argue about the, the real, if you like, the real Romans, the Western Romans, the Roman Romans. Uh, because, of course, you could make an argument that, say, Justinian, the fall of the Western Roman Empire happened um, mm. before and during the reign of Justinian in the 6th century. But he goes back and reconquers Italy briefly, you know, with Belisarius. Very briefly. And then you can say, well, when that falls, you could count Justinian as the la- one of the last, arguably the last Roman emperor. So some say there, that's a bit of a tenuous argument to make, but you can say that. Then there's a few emperors, more than one emperor, and this is what our story today is going to be about. There's more than one emperor in the West mm. that's defeated by a barbarian, in inverted commas, usually Germanic, Gothic-type yeah. peoples, or, or people from further afield. And so there's more than one of those. Um, so you can point to that mm. and say they're the last one. So the two guys that have got the best shout for it are Honorius, an emperor Honorius, and a later one, Romulus Augustulus, who was really just a child figurehead. So and we'll, yeah. I'll talk about all those. Um, but still, even before you get to Honorius, uh, who was defeated by Alaric, mm-hmm. the Visigoth Alaric, um, there's a process, a long process before that. So if I just set that up, but before, but before I set that up, I'd like to give a shout out to one of our uh, fans, a chap who only goes by the name of Leon, who sent us in this book. That inspired this episode. Helmet and Spear by a historian called AJ Church. He said he bought it over 20 years ago for, for 20p in a charity shop. And uh, it's a classic sort of, um, sort of light-hearted, fairly you know, overview type book. There's all sorts of things in it about the ancient world. That, just that, just yeah, so I think, the Roman and Greek world. I, I had a read through the first sort of half, basically, um, just because it's a lovely old style read. This, oh, yes, yeah, I love this sort of book. Yeah, yeah me it. too. Me too. The, these are the sort of things you give to like a teenage boy to teach him about like the classical world. You know, so it's not too in depth, so mm. it's not going to swamp him with details. It'll just hit the major narrative beats that keep the stories interesting and vital, mm. and so mm. you know, and, and bring the the battles to life and the great struggle and stuff. And this is the sort of thing that get a teenage boy into ancient history. It's a really good little thing. Absolutely. They used to have, like, they used to call it boy's own, yeah. boy's yeah. own stuff, like yeah. uh, heroes from, yeah, from yeah. English history or from the ancient world or anything really. And anyway, I had to flick through it and read a bit of it, and it's just... Um, it's great. It sort of took me back to my childhood a bit, the sort of thing I would read. Yeah. And um, anyway, the last chapter in it um, was called Three Deadly Blows, mm. which chronicles some of the events in that process of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And when I was reading it, I'll quote from it a little bit today, when I was reading it, I, it reminded me, well, he's just, A.J. Church there, he's simply paraphrasing Gibbon, Edward mm. Gibbon. I imagine a lot of people are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's some sort of seminal texts. If you ever read almost anything or see a YouTube video or anything really about the 12 Caesars, Whoever's telling that story is just relating Suetonius and or Tacitus. That's all, pretty much all they're doing. Um, now, when it comes to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, most people are paraphrasing Edward Gibbon, mm-hmm. um, an, an Englishman who was writing in the 18th century. And um, I, I mean, I'm familiar with Gibbon. And Gibbon's history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is really, really long. Yeah. It's fantastically long. I've never read it because the, it's just too big. The audiobook will be tens of hours long, the unabridged version. The unabridged version will take up this much on your shelf. Yeah. Maybe not quite that much, but anyway, I've got uh, more than one copy for some reason, somehow 
accumulated over the years, more than one copy of Gibbon. Um, and I reread some of the bits, so I'm going to also quote from Gibbon a bit here. Um, and so, yeah, whip through some of the, the sort of main events. So what sort of year are we starting, about 350? Um, okay, so, uh, no, like the 370s. Right. Uh, but I will go back and explain a little, little bit of detail before that even. So not, one of the, not the emperor, not Honorius, who was defeated by Alaric, but before that, about 35 years before that, the Eastern Roman Empire lost a massive battle, mm. the Battle of Adrianople, uh, which is a city. Um, in fact, Gibbon calls it Hadrianople. Hmm. So when I read the quote, Adrianople, Hadrianople, yeah. same thing. Modern day, it's Adirne, or Adirne, Adirne. As I remember, Adirne. this was a massive crushing defeat to the Goths. Uh, and, uh, no, to the Romans. Uh, uh, no, no, the Romans were defeated by the Goths. Yes, right. The, the defeat was yeah. to them. Right, I see. Yeah, that's right. They yeah. were the ones inflicting it. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. 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 But yeah, and, like, uh, this was a seismic battle like it's yeah. massive that's why i'm going to talk about it here and why aj church chose it as the first event in his mm. three great events mm. because constantinople doesn't fall it hasn't really got anything to do with the west well, it has got something to do with the western empire but rome itself isn't involved however mm. when historians look back on it at the sweep of history it's impossible to not look at that battle and say that, that there are the seeds of rome's ultimate destruction because like i said it's only about 35 odd years later when Rome itself falls for the first time to Alaric. Mm. And like I say, if you look at the whole sweep of things, you have to say, well, that was a turning point because it was as bad for Rome as Cannae. Mm. Um, their army wasn't in, worked out to a man like a Cannae, but nearly, and it was a death blow. It was a death blow. Mm. Okay, so that is in 376 that happens. Uh, the emperor himself, the Eastern emperor, is Valens, and he's actually killed in that battle. The emperor yep. himself is killed. Um, so to set it up before, like 100 years before that even. Sorry, just a quick thing here, yeah. just so people know. Yeah. Uh, Roman emperors don't normally die in battle. Not often. They die from intrigue most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, not it's, it's not normal. I mean, it's very rare, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah, so this, it's momentous to have a Roman emperor die in battle. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Once in a lifetime. Sort of yeah, way. much less than that. Even well, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, super yeah. rare. Yeah. It is. Um, so about a hundred years or so before that, there's an emperor Aurelian, mm. who sort of seeds Dacia mm. um, to store of the world. Yeah, he seeds Dacia to the Goths. Now, mm. the word Goth is a bit like Scythian. It's a very broad umbrella term, and even within that, you've got the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths. And the Visigoths, the Western Goths, even that is You've a got very other kinds of yeah. yeah underneath that, and these are so, broad confederations of culturally aligned Germanic tribes and some non-Germanic tribes as well. So it's 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 very hard from an outside perspective to really gauge the composition of these things, and so most of the time they're like Goths. Sometimes the historians, people that someone like Gibbon himself is mm. drawing from. Uh, like there's a historian called Amelianus, hmm. and there's a, a poet historian called Claudian that he's some often they'll just say the Goths or they'll just say the Visigoths, yeah. And sometimes they will actually mention the names of the individual tribes hmm. within that. So I just wanted the audience to know that it's a 
very broad thing to talk about the Goths or even the Ostrogoths. Yeah, I, I recently finished a book called The Story of the Goths. I can't remember who it was by now, but it was really, really good. And one of the main points they make about Adrianople is that essentially it's not Goths, really. It's, it, like, it's everyone, but the main trunk of the army is Germanic Goths, people who would identify as that. But there are all sorts of other tribes that are kind of tacked on and in coalition with them, and it's just a mess to figure out. And the same thing can be said of if you talk about the Vandals, yeah. same thing. If you talk about the Hun, mm. same thing. Well, the Huns are even worse, because like, I watched a documentary about the Huns that was implying that actually there's not really an ethnicity called Hun. It's <laughs> more kind of a, a countercultural against the Romans, and it's it's hard to know and like the no Romans idea. themselves didn't really know. Yeah. Because no the Huns idea. are like from China basically, from yeah. Mongolia. Mm. And and um and sometimes they're called Tartars. Mm. They're There's from... definitely some a, a confederation of steppe people right. that are doing something, but then like Europeans start adopting their mannerisms because they don't like Rome and things like this. It's just like God, who knows? So anyway, it's so, complicated. <laughs> So about 100 years before Adrianople, one of the Rome, big, important Roman emperors, Aurelian, cedes Dacia, and I'll put a map up so everyone can see what I'm talking about, mm. to the Goths. Um, but it actually worked out quite well. The Goths were um, becoming Christianized, becoming a lot more civilized. They Arians, weren't out and though. out. Um, sorry? Aryans, though. All right, yeah. Can we really so... trust the Aryans? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so They've a... got a very, very small point of doctrinal difference to the real Christians, I'm just saying. There's another thing to mention. So we're talking about, we've already, we've already taken it for granted that everyone knows about yeah. the... Uh, Aryan heresy. Uh, or that. <laughs> and also the partition of the Eastern and Western Roman yeah. Empire. So just quickly to say on that. Um, the Roman Empire got, grew so huge that it sort of had to be split up in, in yeah. the age of Diocletian, who comes just before uh, Constantine I, Constantine the Great, in the early 300s. Um, he decides to split the Roman Empire into four, the Tetrarchy, with two Augustus, two Augusti, who were sort of the senior emperors, and below them two Caesars. So four sovereigns really control it. Constantine did away with all that and put it all back under himself. Now, in the decades after that, it sort of broke up and reunited many times in that period. Um, so... Yeah, the idea that there's sometimes a united and sometimes a partitioned Roman Empire all throughout the 4th century, mm -hmm. it's on and off. Okay, so, um, what seems to have happened is that some Hunnic people were invading from the, from the east, whether they're from Tartary, or they're from the Mongolian steppe, or they're from China, or somewhere in Central Asia, even the Romans didn't seem to know exactly. Well, I was going to say, just to be clear, the maps that the Romans would have been using wouldn't have had anything definite in this region of the world. Well, they wouldn't have been very well explored. They wouldn't have been very well known. But essentially, here be monsters, and they would have turned up with a very rough-looking steppe nomad face. But, yeah. oh, God, the monsters have arrived. Because, again, just something we mentioned before, but every couple of hundred years throughout history, something awful comes off of the eastern steppes to Europe. It's just awful, and it does terrible damage, and then eventually it's either repelled or it settles. And it's just, this happens for literally like 2,000 years until the age of gunpowder, thank God. I've got a great quote later that describes, uh, before people were PC, mm. describing mm. the sort of uh, Asiatic features. Yeah, they're not complimentary. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's quite funny, actually. Yeah. 
Um, uh, but so the the um, uh, some Hunnic peoples were pushing some Goths into um, the Eastern Roman Empire. Mm. This is where the narrative that immigration destroyed the Roman Empire, refugees destroyed the Roman Empire comes mm. from. And there's some to, something to it. And it seems, so the Roman Empire at that point had been divided between two brothers. There was an emperor, Jovian, who died without leaving an heir. And it goes to these two brothers. And the, the elder brother was a military man who took over as a military emperor, uh, Valentinian. Mm. Valentinian the first. Now there's multiple Valentinians in this and multiple Theodosiuses in this. So I'll try and help keep track of them for you. They're very but, cinematic names though, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So Valentinian the first was, um, he took the Western Roman Empire and gave the East to his brother, Valens. Mm. The Valens that dies in this battle. Yeah. So Valentinian the first uh, seems to have been a real tyrant, like he just he sentenced people to death all the time for almost nothing, sort of a person. Um, apparently he'd be constantly be saying things like, I'll burn him alive then, I'll chop his head off then. Um, right, yeah. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Whereas Valens seems to, he wasn't quite as bad as that, he was nearly as bad as that, but not quite as bad. He was a bit more, he's described more sort of a, a scaredy cat type person. Right. Like he's always just scared of what's going to happen next rather than just issuing deaths and not worrying about blood feud or anything. Valens isn't like that. So these brothers are really quite different people. Mm. Anyway, towards the end, uh, to when the battle starts, Valentinian, the older brother in the West, has actually died, and his son, Gratian, who's not very old, um, so Valens' nephew is emperor in the West. And he'll come up tangentially. Um, A.J. Church wrote, In 375... They, the Eastern Romans, uh, were disturbed by reports of an invading host which, which was advancing from the north and east. These reports pictured the newcomers as hideous in appearance and cruelly savage in character. We are now used to the Tartar countenance, but to the Europe in the 4th century, the broad, almost beardless face, flat nose, eyes wide, uh, set wide apart, the squat figure uh, were as frightful as they were strange. As for the savagery of the Huns, for so the newcomers were called, rumours were scarcely exaggerated. So it does say, well, right, so even the Goths were petrified of oh, the yeah. Huns. Yeah. And they seem to have come in sort of countless numbers. Yeah. I'm going to talk about Attila later, Attila the Hun later. And yeah, just all the accounts are like, there's, there's endless numbers of them. Yeah. We can't even begin to count them. There's that many. I mean, and this, this um, is because they're horse nomads, right? Uh, and so you've got a, a massive area that they've come from. But one of the things that the Mongols did is just take advantage of the mobility of the cavalry, right? And so it appeared that they were in all places at all times, but actually they were just moving very fast. They were actually a small number. So it's entirely possible there weren't that many of them. It was just reports. You hear a report there, and then a week later that gets there, but there's another report that's arrived there that was two days later or something, you know, and who knows, something, right? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's undoubtedly going to be a horde, so either way. Just to put this in context for people who might not be aware, um, the Mongol invasion of, of Genghis Khan and his successors mm. are the late 12th century, early 13th, throughout the 13th century. Yeah. So this, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after this. Yeah. You know, nearly a thousand years after this, yeah. best part of a thousand years after this. But so horse nomads have been a scourge for a long time. Right, yeah. Sometimes they're just still called Scythians. The Romans were still just calling them the Scythians. Mm. 
who mm. from the classical era were basically just horse nomads. Mm. Mm. So again, a perennial problem that Europe had to deal with. And not just Europe either. But. So this Hunnic invasion sends the Goths into the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, the Romans have been up against that sort of thing since the days of Julius Caesar. During mm. the days of Julius Caesar, there's a uh, much yeah. more up in Germany, much more in Central and Western Europe. Mm. Suddenly this exodus of refugees, essentially, comes flooding into your land because a yet more barbaric people beyond them have pushed them into your territory. And this is huge numbers as well. Yeah. Like it's, we're, we're talking, what, 50,000, 60,000, something like that, isn't it? Uh, in this story... It, well, when the, when the Goths arrive at the Roman border. Here? Yeah. No, it's loads. They think it's like a million. What, really? Yeah. Okay. So they think maybe there was 200,000 fighting men. Jesus. Which suggests... And yeah. they've got all their women and children yeah. with them. And they're armed as well. Right. Which right. is bloody silly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they let them in armed for some reason? Well, I've got a quote here. Um, yeah. So when they come across the Danube, hmm. um, the Romans, the Eastern Roman Emperor, Varans, and, and his councillors, his ministers, have to make a decision what they're going to do. They have to do something. They have to deal with it. <laughs> what are we going to do with 200,000 armed fighting men? Because in Caesar's day, he decides to sort of massacre a lot of them, yeah, them and say, no, you're not coming into Roman-occupied Gaul or Roman territory. I'm not, I'm not going to allow it. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place now. Good luck. Well, Valens decides he'll he'll let them in. Um, and in fact, he'd be qu- quite nice to them, like, or at least on paper, supposed to be quite nice to them. Um, but one of his stipulations, again, on paper, was that we have to disarm you, though. Yeah. And then, But then his people didn't do that. Mm. But so there, there's that's a, question. a mistake. I mean, can the Roman army of the 4th century deal with 200,000 Goths who... Because, I mean, like we, we said, well, why didn't he just do that? Well, he might be looking at his 50,000 men and being like, they can't handle this. He might not have been able to. Yeah. Right, yeah. Like, and the only way to keep the peace and stop them from just killing the army and then burning down Gaul is to kind of cooperate. And so... Right, yeah. Yeah. If there's someone much bigger than you yeah. insisting they're taking your pocket money, you can, take the, you can refuse and take the beating. Or you can just you can just give it to them, right? It's, <laughs> it's easier in a way, yeah. just to give them your pocket money. Maybe um, we can manage the problem after the fact. You know? mm, yeah. yeah, and so he even ferries them across the Danube. Mm. Um, and there's a quote here from A.J. Church saying, "Having thus allowed them uh, to remain formidable, because they didn't take their weapons off them, um, they proceeded. The Romans proceeded with almost incredible folly to insult and oppress them in every possible way." Yeah. They robbed them of their wives and children um, and sold at, at extortionate prices the food which the imperial government had bound to provide without cost. So it seems like Valens' bureaucrats just took advantage of the situation. Yeah, totally exploited them and gave them a just cause to really hate the Romans. I mean, okay, you've stolen my family and now you're putting me... I mean, some of them had to sell their own children to, to feed themselves. It's like, okay, why are you doing that again? Because, I mean, like, a more prudent policy, and I'm sure one Valens was thinking of, would have been, okay, well, then take small groups of them and just ferry them around the empire, settle them down, and then we've got more manpower. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Again, when historians look back on it, it just seems like Valens and the Eastern Roman um, establishment are just making all the wrong decisions, just again and again and again, a really key decision Mm. which could have prevented you from a disaster. Yeah. You did the wrong thing. Because, I mean, you, you had... The option when you're ferrying them across to ferry as many as you could deal with and then just get them processed 
right? And they, you, you know, you've got that option. Like they're not going anywhere else. They need you to get the cross. So mm. you have the option there. And for some reason, they just don't take it. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm sure they had good reason for what they were doing, or maybe they were just evil. Who knows? But uh, yeah. you know, yeah, it's just really obviously in hindsight, this was a bad idea. And so here now, the Eastern Roman world is flooded by both Visigoths and Ostrogoths. Mm both types of goth, um, maybe a million of them, maybe 200, 220 or thousand fighting men, armed mostly, mm. are in your territory and now, and on top of that, actively pissed off yeah. that you're sort of oppressing them, I mean, don't extorting you wrong. them. I can understand the Roman position. It's like, oh, look, 200,000 or a million goths have turned over. And they want Gibbs. I'm mm. very sympathetic mm. to the anti-Gibbs argument. Uh, I, can, I can see why the average Roman taxpayer was like, why the hell should I pay for them? They shouldn't even be here, you know. Send them to Rwanda to be processed. You know? <laughs> yeah. I can totally understand it. Mm. But, um, but it's a different world and they are armed and uh, the government is feckless and incompetent. So, And so where um, they could have perhaps in another, uh, if it had worked out differently, they mm. might have been able to team up against the, the shared foe of the Hun. They don't. So uh, basically a war breaks out between the Goths, mainly Visigoths, but also Ostrogoths, against the Eastern Romans. Um, and, well, sort of straight away, the Eastern Romans are sort of hard-pressed. They've already had, uh, Valens has already had many wars with sort of the Persian, more Persian-type peoples mm -hmm. in Anatolia. So he'd been, he wasn't even residing in... Constantinople, he'd been residing in Antioch for like four or five years mm. already. So there's an, an, another whole theatre of combat and things going on there. Dealing with assassinates or something, right? Uh, yeah, all sorts Whoever of... Whoever it is. Yeah, right. Um, Some, you know, the perennial Iranian <laughs> empire that they have to fight. And the, the other thing that historians look back on, just briefly, quickly to say, um, is that the Roman generals after the main influx of the goths across the danube should have then at the very least sort of secured the danube frontier again against later incursions and they didn't do that either so again it sets up when you can zoom out and look at the whole mm. thing you can say well that was further down the road decades further down the road that's a fail yeah again a pretty bad sort of a fatal error sort of thing um so there's a, a battle at Pravadi, a place called Pravadi, another one near Varna, um, a place called the Willows. Not sure exactly where that is. <laughs> um, a few big battles, um, which basically go the Goths way, more or less. Um, and anyway, they keep pushing down into well, where is now modern Udurne, um, Adrianople. Mm. And Valens decides that he's going to or he returns from Antioch to Constantinople and decides he's got to march out to meet them. Because although he's sort of fairly cowardly type person, um, he's not, that's still not our type of a coward, yeah. i.e. a real <clears throat> craven. Yeah. He's still prepared to go out and fight in a battle. Yeah. But just... It's he, necessary. He's not, he's not like an Alexander type. No. He's not an Henry But I mean, if, if you're the emperor and you've got hundreds of thousands of barbarians running around sacking things, you've got to deal with it. It's just your job. So he marches his army, the Eastern Roman Imperial Army, out to Adrianople. And the Gothic Horde is camped a few miles away from it, about 10 miles away from it. Mm. And his counsellors say to him, 
look, we're sort of in home territory here. Their supply lines, if, if you can even call it that sort of thing, their logistics, they're a long way from home and we're right near home. Um, what we should probably do is, the longer we leave it, the better for us. Mm. We should try and starve them out. They can only live with the land for so long. Um, and also Gracians coming from the West with an army. Mm. We've even got a letter here saying, where Gracian, his nephew, Valens's nephew, saying, wait for me, we should team up. You know, we need, we need to try and make sure of this victory. But Valens decides, no, he doesn't want to share any of the glory with oh, really? Gracian. And he was of the mind that it was just sort of dishonourable or something to starve him out. He sort of wanted to win a glorious victory. I mean, that is the Roman the attitude towards war, but like, uh, how did that victory go? Not too well. <laughs> this AJ Church says... Famously bad, in fact. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.